Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. So the differentiator is really that beginning to end experience. That's what really makes you unique. And if you're focusing in on a group of people, like a patron group, you can start to laser focus everything you do to be fantastic for them. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. People don't buy food, they buy a store. This will make me look thin. This will make me look cool. This will make me feel good. What story is your food telling? What does it say about someone who chooses to patronize your restaurant? If you don't know, then your guest probably doesn't know either. That's why I reached out to Joseph Zala of Vigor Branding. Vigor specializes in telling their clients stories. And today, Joseph teaches us how to tell our own. Long story long, I worked in restaurants as my first job, like most of us did. I believe the stat is one in three. I think through there, I found music. I was playing music. Somebody had to do design stuff. I did design stuff. I learned. And then it was sort of a recentering as the economic crash of the mid to late 2000s happened, where I realized I really didn't want to be putting my brain aptitude, my efforts, and my passion behind things like CNC engineering machines and big pharma and things like that, although the money was great. I really want to affect something that I was passionate about. And when I look at this industry, I see an industry that has its struggles, it has its challenges, but my God, it has some wonderful high points. And when you really look at it, you realize that we're really not serving food at all, are we? We're serving up amazing experiences that should be remembered as a part of the human life experience. So when I think about the first date with my now wife, I think about the background too. I know where we were. I remember what it looked like. Now, that's because I think that place did a pretty good job. But imagine what a disservice it is to be providing food and backdrop and atmosphere that's so unforgettable that you actually never make it to that part of the memory. And I wanted to fix that. I wanted to make sure that everyone that we worked with and the information that we put out there became worthy of that backdrop. So that's how I got into the niche of restaurants. And I'll throw hospitality in there as well, just with hotels and everything. And what do you do specifically? What would you say you're best in the world at? Brand strategy, brand design, developing all the components that create the visual experience. I think where we fall short would be architecture. We're not architects and PR. So I started an agency called Vigor back in 2003 and we niched, I would say in 2009. And the whole goal was to be able to, if we didn't do it ourselves, be able to truly collaborate with partners who shared our vision. And so I think we filled in the blanks quite nicely with a nice suite of partners in those areas. And why write a book? There are a lot of books out there already. Yeah, there are. (laughs) The first book I wrote was on email marketing. Let me tell you how intelligent it is to write a book on technology. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Like the minute you get it published, it's completely obsolete. For sure. But so I wrote this book 
the journey to get there, I had written a small novelette or novella, but wasn't it's not fiction, based on stories from around the world across cultures, across time, that involved the bull as a metaphor for delivering adages and truisms. And this aligned with our spirit animal of sorts and vigor, which is a bull, but there's reasons why. And that book happened to just be the reasons why. So we had that book. Early in 2011, when we niched, I decided to take my frustrating responses to misconceptions and quote unquote, write a book. And so what happened was it started as a brochure. And I realized that no one wants a brochure. Like, <laughs> no one, <laughs> like zero people. And so I was like, well, what if I take this brochure and I make something worthwhile for the recipient and then maybe we get some work out of it? And we did. And so it was great, but admittedly, it was written with the tone of piss and vinegar and a little more edge than I would have appreciated and didn't really represent us today. So I started to embark on rewriting that book. And then I ended up writing the, what we called Running with the Bulls, which was those bull stories. And I was like, oh, wait a second, we should pull these together. And so really the idea was to take that core moment from that first book and say, how can I make this even more powerful for Everyone from the enterprising restaurateur who has never opened a restaurant, the whole way through somebody who is leading the charge of a small multi-unit looking to get to those next levels and give them applicable thinking and then hopefully dispel some myths and disinformation out there. And the book was written in earnest. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you do talk about those different paths and the fact that you do need like a fully built out brand that looks and sounds and feels very specific when you're looking to create a multi-unit enterprise. But for a mom and pop, less so. They still need branding, but they need it done in a different way. And early on in the book, you juxtapose the difference between branding and brand identity. And I'm hoping that you can unpack that for me now, because I think they're really easy to confuse. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think either through laziness, misunderstandings, or maybe something more sinister, like just trying to get sales, branding became synonymous with like logo design and naming. Sure. But really, branding is business. Brand strategy is business strategy. They are one and the same. The minute you even start thinking about your potential restaurant, you're actually creating the basis of a brand. A brand is what people think about you when they encounter you in the world, whether it's from Josh telling me about this cool new restaurant to driving past a sign on the street to hearing an ad. All of that evokes an emotion in people, even if that emotion is disinterest and completely unaware of the brand, but they all culminate to create a sentiment. And that's essentially the purpose of what would be ongoing brand management and fostering the brand marketing, advertising the whole nine. But brand identity is one tiny slice of the branding picture. And it's what a lot of people think of when they think of branding, which is logo, colors, patterns, visuals, all the things you can see. Whereas branding as a discipline, it's strategic meaning there is deep insights, research, knowledge. You're looking for like nooks and crannies in this minutia of fog that just happens with all these brands yelling. I call it a brandscape. I'm sure I didn't coin that. But when you think of the brandscape, even of specifically restaurants, man, it is a crowded room with everyone screaming at the top of their lungs. Oh yeah, it's really hard to break through. And so you need to find that niche. And so 
that niche isn't necessarily just positioning. It's so much more. And if you use branding as the methodology and as the thinking, you can start to make very strong decisions that guide the brand. So rather than having a hamburger restaurant that quote unquote serves the best hamburgers, I know so because my mom said, (laughs) you can start to say, well, I'm an edgy kind of rocker vibe and therefore I'm going to have the Led Zeppelin burger and it's going to have these toppings that somehow allude to that music. You start to get very smart about how you deliver this because that's essentially what people are buying. And look, my hamburger is the best hamburger I've ever eaten because I made it for me. So you're never going to make a better hamburger than me. But what you are going to be able to do as a restaurant is create an atmosphere that I could never create and a good burger. So I think that describes the difference. Now, one of the struggles that I had as an owner and operator, and that I think that a lot of people do is telling a consistent story through branding, through brand identity. And you see it, right? You see people that do a terrible job, but more often than not, what you see is you see someone that almost got there, which is so disappointing that everything is right. But then the music is like mega death, right? And so- (laughs) Hey, David Stane's a great guitar player. (laughs) (laughs) And you want desperately for it to work. And then you walk into other places and it is a complete story. It all makes sense. Everything flows together. You don't know exactly how it works, but you know that it does. And it works together seamlessly. What is the difference between the two? Where do people most often go wrong when it comes to establishing not the branding, but the brand identity? It's a good question because there's also another layer that's just as bad as having no story. And that's the story that's so contrived, that's so not believable and saccharine. It's like, I would almost rather know a story. But I think the difference is intention and realizing that everything has to be orchestrated from something. Now, I think the brands that tend to be soulless that don't really have that story, it's usually a business opportunity and that's it. You have a person with money, they see an opportunity to build a restaurant, which already tells you how intelligent they are when it comes to their money. (laughs) Risk versus reward, right? But all joking aside, if you're not in the industry, you would realize that it's risky and you have to love the industry just as much as you want to make money. And so I think what you'll see is they see a business thing, call it something burger. I'm just going to keep on using the burger thing top of mind for me, but anything burger, oh, it's called cool guy burger good enough. And it is get something out there. They want the food to taste good. So of course they focus on that. And then maybe they make the walls yellow because, well, their wife likes yellow or they like yellow. And therefore that's why they did that. And then it's just all these very soulless decisions that actually probably have a good reason. They just never took the time to excavate it and find out why. What also happens with that is all of the bad things that we know about in restaurants, menu creep, you know, the going from a limited menu to a cheesecake factory menu overnight kind of thing. Because how do you say no to something? If you taste a delicious apple crisp, well, that should go on the menu because it's good. So I think the real difference is intention and what are you using as a barometer for decision making? Is it your gut? Because I can tell you that guts have shit for brains. It's not a good way to go. But usually people that have a good gut there are actually principles at play, whether they acknowledge them or not. And so when you can find out what those principles are, what the basis is, you can actually fix that problem of not having a story or having a story that's so contrived, it's kind of disgusting and vile. 
I know that fear. The fear of losing everything, or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. Is there a lens to look through? I'll give you an example. So as an owner and operator, when I really got focused and when we really started making money, it was because I looked at every decision, every choice, every opportunity, and I would ask, does this make me money or does this save me money? And if the answer was yes to either one, I considered it. If it was yes to both, I did it. And if it was no to both, I didn't even consider it. And so I'm wondering with brand identity and with branding in general, is there a lens like that that you can look through to make sure that there is that consistency of message and intention? Yeah, I think the easiest baseline lens would be a personality. And so we have a layer in the book. There's a layer to our diagram that it showcases the unique relationship between brands and what we call patrons. I specifically hate the word target market, target consumer. I think it's a very violent way to talk about someone you're supposed to be friends with. Instead, we want to foster patronage. And so one of the layers is personality. And it's actually really simple to employ. Use the power of three and home in on three unique traits. Here's a little bit of a newsflash. Fun is not one of them. Delicious is not one of them. <laughs> really dig in and find some unique traits that you feel make you or this in this concept unique and then use that as the lens. So if I'm using just off the cuff, what does Josh look like? Okay, well, he seems so expert, okay, trendy, let's just say trendy, and artful, just because for those that aren't watching, there's a beautiful Jackson Pollock-esque, I presume it's not. Is it Jackson Pollock? It's not. If it was, I would have a much better webcam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I presumed, <laughs> but then I was like, man, that could be dangerous. So artful. So great. If those are your three traits, to repeat, expert, artful, trendy. And I come to you with, let's say, deep mahogany wood, ornate carvings, and I want to do white tablecloth, and we're going to serve cocoa bean, and we're going to serve, uh, name the old, I mean, they're delicious, but old stuff. You can easily say, well, that's not artful or trendy at all. Well, maybe artful, but not trendy. So it actually becomes a nice barometer to say, although I love those things, they don't fit this. And concurrently, what happens is when you actually do have an idea that align with the three traits, you get even more excited because you're like, oh, hell yeah, that is going to be gangbusters. And it um, passes the smell test. You can look at it and you know it fits. Right. And you can see when something's off. Like if you go into, you know, independent restaurant, you can tell that one day the owner decided they liked the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and found a memorabilia and threw it on the wall because you're like, sort of like, what's that doing there? Like, why is it even here? It's like, oh, Jimmy liked it, so he put it there. But having that barometer and being able to identify a great idea that isn't great for you is, I think, one of the most powerful things. So you had your 
was rather binary. Did it make money or save money if it was yes, go ahead. There's another layer there too, specific with menus. And we call it, everyone talks about the profitable items and the popular items. But we like to also talk about the perceptual items. So a good example of this is TGI Fridays. I was speaking to Nick Shepard, who was head of that organization a while back. I was speaking to him because I called him out and in media and he wasn't happy with me. Um, <laughs> Dad got mad and, and invited me to a dinner, um, but it was good fun. But what he really wanted to do is kind of show me some things. But for instance, I specifically took a jab at the ahi nachos on TGI Friday's appetizers menu because it's like, what? no one's going there for sriracha ahi nachos. And he actually showed me some numbers and some studies, which data is one of the most important things out there. And what I saw was, although the nachos didn't sell at all, and they certainly were not profitable. Having them on the menu adjusted the perceptions of everything else around it. So all of a sudden, those chicken tendies, they look a little more gourmet because they're next to those nachos. Therefore, you can actually charge a little bit more. They taste better because they feel elevated. So it's nuanced, but it's really important, I think. So there are things that may not make you money in, let's say, an interior design or in some of the applications of brand identity and brand experience, but they may have a different need met. And that could be elevating the experience or being a reason to believe something. I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think that it's a really valid point. I talk to restaurateurs all the time that are super proud of their food. It is delicious food. And one of the things that you say is table stakes aren't differentiators. That having good food, having good service, having great food, great service, it's not even a competitive advantage anymore because it's so widely available. So what are differentiators? If you were to call out things that truly make independent restaurants different from, let's say, large chains or their local competition. Yeah. So if I can add a little flavor on that before we hop into what are differentiators, it's really important to know that when a restaurant here says something like, we have the best pizza. The very notion of that statement means you're telling a lot of people that they are wrong. And that doesn't go very well because the fact is, is we have our favorite pizza. We have our favorite hamburger. And so by you saying you have the best means that mine's not the best and that's kind of messed up because flavor is so subjective, not just to the human, but to the moment. I would never say a McDonald's hamburger is terrible because you know what? There are times where I really want one and it tastes awesome to me. I don't eat it often, but I certainly wouldn't say McDonald's hamburger is better than, let's say, Shake Shack. But McDonald's hamburger is better than Shake Shack if I need it really quick and I need to spend under X amount of dollars. So there are many things that go into differentiators. I think it is a magic mix of not just your product, but also those personality traits that I mentioned and even deeper a purpose. So why did you even create this outside of the capitalistic potential return on investment, which I'm not knocking. It's we need to make money. But if the purpose isn't there, then there's something lacking, you know, a soul, if you will. But if you have a strong purpose, which can simply mean to carry on the torch of my family's recipes, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you have a nice marker. And then if that's the case, you then have this personality layer that's right underneath purpose. And then that starts to create a full experience. So the differentiator is really that beginning to end experience. That's what really makes you unique. And if you're focusing in on a group of people, like a patron group, you can start to laser focus everything you do to be fantastic for them. So, you know, my reality is oftentimes I'm in a rush. 
So a sit down burger place that's going to take me an hour in and out, it's really not going to be my go-to very often. It doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means my ability to become loyal is actually quite low because I just don't have that in my space of a day. However, if you have, let's say, more of a hipster bar that has really great food but very nonchalant about it and they're focusing on a group of people that have their happy hours open, you create a whole vibe for that person. That's what really creates that affinity and that love for the brand. And that's the same for a Fortune 500 restaurant brand down to Jimmy's on the corner. There's a reason why even those dive bars still have a love. And I owned a dive bar and I owned a Michelin rated fine dining restaurant and I owned a fast casual concept. And there was one unifying theme and it's the reason that all three concepts had the same patrons and had the same type of patrons. It's because the main driver was my ideology. Mm. I went out and I said, if you believe what I believe, then you should give me your money. And in doing so, it didn't matter what I opened because they believed what I believed. It's the same reason I think that Apple Computers has done as well as it has, because nobody believes in a computer, but they believe in what the possession of that computer says about them. And I think that for so many restaurateurs, we start out with the absolute best of intentions, and then we get caught up in the grind. But the easiest way to remember why you started it is to repeat it every day to your team, to your patrons, and on social media. And if people believe what you believe, if for me it was a sense of community, traditional Southern values like hospitality and building that one-to-one relationship over time, that I built places where you could come alone. And if you did, you would have as good of an experience as you would if you came with friends because my team are your friends. And so working to put all of that together and build that reputation over years Why wouldn't you try my fried chicken? Why wouldn't you go out to a nice date night at my fine dining restaurant? Why wouldn't you go catch a Saints game at my bar? Because you want me to succeed. Because your money is investing in what we collectively believe together. That's right. And I think one of the most important things you just said is I would say if there was one thing that I would tell every business owner, not just restaurants, every business owner to do is get it out of your head. And get it onto proverbial paper because here's where a lot of restaurateurs go wrong. It just stays up there and that's essentially their gut. Well, then a chef gets involved and the chef has his or her own ideas and maybe they align because you got on. Obviously, you wouldn't have hired them if you didn't, but they may think a foie gras pizza is the best thing in the world. And you're like, well, I like that. My purpose for the, in your head, you're thinking it's like, it doesn't fit what I really want to do here, but the chef doesn't know it. And then you can go down the line the whole way to the person sweeping the floors. The more your team and the ancillary stakeholders, like even your finance person or your lawyer, the more those people understand why this place exists, what makes it, you know, the unique way in which you do things, your how, and then what you actually do, they can activate it without you. And that's the dream. To me, a failing restaurant isn't necessarily the one that closes the doors. That's a good indicator that a restaurant has failed. A failure of a restaurant is one where the person has to be there from five in the morning till midnight every day because they have not put in procedures. And those procedures start with why the hell does this thing exist? What makes this brand unique? And how do you activate it? And a good benchmark for if that's working or not is did the people get excited when you told them? Did they start to absorb it and come up with new ideas? that actually started to get closer to the mark for you. 
And so I think getting it out of your head is such an important thing. And it doesn't have to be a big, beautiful, formal document. Just get it out so other people can absorb it. Competition is another big topic in the book. And you bring up a point that escaped me for many years, which is who you think your competitors are might not be your competitors at all. I think entrepreneurially, we're very, very competitive people. And in the restaurant space, I thought I was competing against this Italian restaurant over here. Like when I was a teenager and I would like pretend race people in my car when I first started (laughs) driving. So like, I'm the only one that's in the race because I'm the only one that knows what's going on. Yeah. How do we determine who our competitors are in the minds of our patrons? It's a great question. So I think the trap is if it's a restaurant, we're competing. But I'm all about flipping that script. I don't really actually believe in competition at all. Because the fact is, is even that restaurant owner is going to get sick of their own damn food. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to their friend's restaurant. So you can be a friend to your competitor, vie for the same people. But the Italian restaurant is not a competitor to the burger restaurant. And the burger restaurant like McDonald's, they're not competing with Shake Shack. Shake Shack may think they're competing with McDonald's, but they're not. You know, McDonald's is not going to create a better burger that tries to fight the Shake Shack phenomenon. So I think there's a couple of ways to approach it. And one, it's about knowing your patron first and foremost, and then knowing the category use occasions. I'm going to steal that word from Greg Creed, former Yum Brands CMO or CEO, CMO, one of those, see something, Uh, (laughs) has a great book called Red Marketing. And Mm -hmm. the category use occasion is a really important thing to know because for instance, if you recall what I was saying about McDonald's versus Shake Shack earlier, If I'm on the go, Shake Shack's not on my radar. So McDonald's is not competing for that. McDonald's is probably competing for my share of mouth against a Burger King, a Wendy's, obviously, because there's the big ones, and maybe a Popeye's chicken. You know what I mean? Like it may not even be the burger category. So all these other burger restaurants may say, well, we're better burger. And the lesser burger in that equation is like, we don't even care about you. Like, You're not our moment because the fact is, is I can actually equally love McDonald's as much as I do Shake Shack. Shake Shack for me is a little more elevated. Uh, I have a little bit of time, not a lot, but a little bit. But then on top of that, there's another one that I would go to instead of either of those if I had more time. So knowing the category use occasions and knowing your person, knowing that patron, knowing what they like, what they value in their life, knowing what other brands they buy. We talk a lot about that. When we talk about patrons here at Vigor and and what I have in the book is a lot of folks, a lot of leaders focus in on demographics. They'll talk about psychographics, but all the agencies I've worked around and all the companies I've worked with, it's always missed some sort of connective glue between the brand. So it's great that I know that Josh wakes up at seven in the morning, brushes his teeth X amount of times, hops in his car, goes to work for a commute of 10 minutes. This is important because objectively, you need to find locations that help you get Josh. Like where the Josh is living and how can I fit in there? However, what makes a decision between Burger King, Wendy's, and McDonald's is a different layer. And it starts to get to what you had just said a little bit ago, which is people adopt all brands as a way to communicate something about themselves to the world. It's the reason why we have so many car options. It's the reason why we have so many clothing options. We're at a place where we're we're so unbelievably privileged as a society that we have not a lack of things. We have options because now we're using them to express ourselves. So when I say a friend of mine named Lauren, 
drives a Prius, wears Lululemon, has an Orange Theory subscription, and goes to Whole Foods. By hearing those four brands, you know so much about what Lauren wants you to think about her. Now, the divide between who Lauren really is and what she values might be very small or it might be quite large. So Lauren may never take the Prius out of gas mode. She may only get hot bar at a Whole Foods, hasn't stepped foot in Orange Theory for a year and just wears the lemon while laying around. That would be a quite a large divide. But nevertheless, we're able to curate our personalities, representations of our personalities and project them to the world. So restaurants the same way. If I say I'm a Shake Shack guy, you have some assumptions, presumptions about me, whether they're true or not to be determined. You also unpack product in a really, really interesting way. So you divide product into FMB, service, and philanthropy. And rather than going through and unpacking each one, because I think broadly people know what that is, I'm hoping that you can provide examples of brands that have done a really good job in our space of bringing all those things together in a harmonious way. Yeah, the very easy answer to that is also going to seem very trite considering I live in Atlanta, Georgia, but Chick-fil-A <laughs> has done a fantastic <laughs> job of it. And so I don't need to describe it because I just say it. You guys probably know. So let's move on from that. Uh, Firehouse would be another one. Firehouse subs. Their why is directly aligned to the philanthropic cause. Now, that's a little bit easier because they were built with that in mind. Freebirds, World Burrito being the same way, but sometimes it's distant. What I want to make very clear is that the philanthropy is not a must-have. There are people that are going to tell you you have to have it, that cause marketing is what it's all about. I think it's BS because there's nothing worse than someone who says cause marketing, but we all know why they're doing it. So it's either baked into the pie like Freebirds and like Firehouse or be smarter about it. I'm really laying into philanthropy because it's a hot point right now for a lot of marketers, which you know, that's where it's gone wrong when the marketers are talking about it. (laughs) But it can be very controversial as well, because the very notion of philanthropy is to help people. So who doesn't want to help people? So we had a client for a while. Their name is Johnny's Pizza House. They're based in West Monroe, Louisiana, have a decent sized footprint, about 50 units. Now for the longest time, every year, Johnny's would take their cinnamon stick size pizza and they would use pink sprinkles and then raise money for Susan G. Komen. So this is a very touchy discussion to have because when we look at the brand strategy that we had collaboratively developed, I couldn't figure out why Susan G. Komen belonged there. We don't do anything for breast cancer except for raise money once a year. And what that ends up coming off as, although still doing good, still raising money for a good cause, there are some people who may argue that, the organization, I should say. So check the box, right? But the problem is, is it had nothing to do with the brand. However, Mr. Johnny, Johnny himself of Johnny's Pizza, unfortunately had passed away a couple of years prior to having this conversation from dementia. I was like, well, guess what? We do have a story that makes a lot more sense. And that's raising money for Alzheimer's. It's baked into who we are. It's how we lost our beloved founder and beloved he was. So our suggestion, again, it's touchy. It's like, let's stop doing the pink sprinkles. Let's do purple ones and raise money for something that was truly aligned with our brand. Now it seems less of a ploy to get people to buy cinnamon sticks and more aligned with something good that we can believe in. And oh yeah, we should start doing Alzheimer's walks. We should start doing more beyond just sprinkling stuff on one of our products. So 
there's a line that you can cross easily and start using philanthropy, I think, in a very malicious way. Even though their benefits are still there, it doesn't do your brand any good. But I think if you dig deep, like you were saying with your purpose, you can actually find something that makes a lot of sense. And everyone wins when that's the case. Now, the service and the F&B side of it, when we talk about service, you really want to get granular. So if you're an expert, artsy, trendy person, and I meet you and you say, Mr. Zala, it's a profound pleasure to meet you. And, you know, like, I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. That doesn't seem, that seems off. But if you were wearing white gloves and a tuxedo, then maybe that would seem a little more aligned. So if you remember that you're creating an experience, everything matters, starting from the approach on the street. So maybe you thought investing money in that shrubbery outside was not going to save you money. Like you said earlier, save you money or make you money. But I think if you dig in, it actually does because that approach is everything. First impression, you know. There's this really poignant part in the book where you talk about rebranding versus a brand evolution. Define both for me and what they look like in action. Yeah, a rebranding is usually a result of a very pivotal moment, positive or negative. So a rebranding could entail a complete name change. I mean, it is burning down Rome and starting over. The only reason you do that is because there was a merger where both entities actually didn't make sense anymore and not one over the other either. Another option would be something really bad happened. A good example of that did not spark a rebrand, but there is a chain of grocery stores called Kroger, in in case you don't know. And here in Atlanta, we have taken to naming our Krogers. There's Disco Kroger because it used to be a disco back in the day. And there's a big mural for those that know. And then there was another one that had the unfortunate name of Murder Kroger, which, and everybody called it Murder Kroger. And in defense of Kroger, where that is actually rejuvenated, became a lot nicer, a lot safer. And so there's a walking trail throughout Atlanta now called the Beltline. So Kroger invested money to rebrand it, in this case, getting rid of murder and rebranding it as Beltline Kroger which I think actually would have taken off. But no sooner did they launch the campaign, someone got shot, killed in the parking lot. (laughs) So you're like, bad news bears, you're murder Kroger. (laughs) So that would be an example of like a negative thing that you would have to overcome. Counter to that, brand evolution is usually the right choice for a brand that has been around long enough to develop equity in components of the brand, be it name, color, style, look, feel, yada, yada. And a brand evolution is a lot more surgical. It's a lot smarter to do. And what that entails is not burning down Rome, but instead saying, why did we put those drapes on the wall? I don't think they fit anymore, do they? No. Like If I look at this strategy that we put together, we should actually have open windows and a lot of light. Yeah, it's a good point. Maybe we change the paint on the walls. Maybe we do change the logo, but instead of a start over, it's more evolving the look forward. A good examples of these at the macro level would be Starbucks. If you look at the Starbucks OG logo, it's brown, highly intricate illustration. The mermaid's still there, but you can see her breasts because that's what they looked like back in the days of Moby Dick. That's how they were drawn. And it was more cluttered. And then if you recall, it suddenly went green, greener logo. Mermaid got a little more streamlined and Starbucks wrapped around it in thick, beautiful letters in black. So it was Green Mermaid, black on the outside, and all of a sudden it went fully green. Mermaid got even more streamlined, and now we just have a Green Mermaid. So that's a good example of, I think, intelligent 
evolution because you're taking into account many things in that place in that way story i should say you can't do that if you're not really well known starbucks is on every corner sometimes two corners across the street from each other but We've done it for brands big and small. One of my favorites was evolving the brand of a Cuban bakery in Ybor City in Tampa. This small little bakery had been around since 1915. Fourth generation family member was taking ownership. You can't come in there and take it all apart. Like That's insane. You're going to lose all the people that loved you. So we had to be very surgical about how we ushered in a new look. That's brand evolution. And so what's right for you is strictly your predicament. It's an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? The biggest piece of advice, this is in life in general, the only bad decision is indecision. Don't eat the whole hamburger at once. Take bites and move it forward. And if your heart's in the right place, I think you really will end up in a better place than you were yesterday. That's Joseph Zala. For more on Vigor, visit VigorBranding.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.